Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. It's an email that I received after what happened that really set me off. And so you know the story. Many, If you listen to this program regularly, you know that, that I have two little dogs. One's a Bichon. His name is Rocky. The only Bichon named Rocky in the world. And the, the reason he was named Rocky is because when he'd tree a squirrel at our house in Quebec, he'd run up on the porch and he'd jump up on a bench and he'd do a Sylvester Stallone dance. So he had to be Rocky. So he was a rescue dog and... It's about 18 months old when we got him. And then my wife bought a little Yorkshire Terrier. And she'd had a Yorkie before, and she wanted another one. So we uh, we got this little dude. She picked him out from the litter, and and uh, his name is Sunshine. She called him Sunshine or Sonny. And Sonny is a character. Sonny is uh, prone to tell you everything that's going on in his day. And if he wants something, he's going to tell you about that, too. And he'll sit in front of me, and he'll just talk. He won't bark. He won't make loud noises. He'll just talk. Or what passes for talking from a dog. And I'm supposed to interpret what it is that he wants. And over the period of the last few years, we've developed a bit of communication. (laughs) Based on the sound, I have an idea of what it wants. What he wants, usually it has to do with food. Anyway, um, on Monday, Sonny didn't look all too well. He wasn't himself. He was um, lethargic. He wouldn't eat. Didn't want to go out. Didn't want to play with his buddy Rocky. The two of them always have uh, tug-of-war games. And so he was just not himself. And as the day went on, he just got worse and worse and worse and started to shake. And so... um, and he just had his, his shots a couple of days earlier, so I wondered if it was maybe a bit of a residual effect from the shots. So I thought, I'll give it a few hours. I'll give it until tomorrow morning, which I did, and then on Tuesday he was not any better. So I went, uh, took him down to see my vet, and they, uh, they took a look at him and uh, gave me a couple of things to give him, and you know, medication. And It didn't do very well. He didn't do very well with the medication. And um, So Wednesday morning I took him back down again. And the vet said, he, didn't look too, he doesn't look as good as he did yesterday, and he didn't look very well yesterday, so why don't we do an X-ray, and, uh, and we'll see where we go from there. Well, the X-ray seemed to show there might have been something stuck in his stomach. And I thought perhaps it was a piece of cloth from the tug-of-war that he and his buddy Rocky played that, he, that maybe tore a toy and something got into his tummy. But then he, uh, and I won't be too graphic, there started to be projectile ejections front and rear. And it just got worse and worse and worse. So the vet said to me, I think you ought to take him to the emergency hospital. And we'll call them and let them, let the, let, let them know you're coming because the, the, the dog obviously has a problem. And a significant problem. 
so now I'm, you know, you, you love your dogs. You love, they're, they're part of the family, and he's literally the little guy's my connection to my wife. So I took him to the, uh, to the animal hospital and the emergency hospital, and they were just terrific. They were wonderful people. And they said, we need to take him in. We need to keep him in. They, did, they checked him out. They said, there's something significantly wrong with your dog, and we're going to find out what it is, and we'll do what we can to help him and make him well again. How old is he? Five years old. He should be okay then. So he was there Wednesday. They kept him Wednesday night, and he was still having his ejection or rejection problems. He didn't want to eat. He didn't want to drink. He didn't want to do anything. He was losing weight. He's only seven pounds to begin with. And there was concern about whether or not he was actually going to recover. And by Thursday morning, I've got to keep the day square here. Thursday morning, he was still having problems. Thursday night, uh, so they kept him overnight. And, uh, and yesterday, I called them in the morning. They said, he's still not well. Call us in the evening. In the evening, I got in the car. I said, I'm taking him home. Said to myself, said to Rocky, I'm going to go get your buddy. Because I think he's going to be better off with us than at the animal hospital. If at all he can come home, he's coming home. So I went to, uh, and, and you know the emotional attachment you have. I said this earlier. You have this emotional attachment to the dog, and you're, it's, it's tremendously worrying. And his buddy, Rocky, by the way, went and collected all their toys, which he likes to do. He likes to have them all in a pile in front of him, and then he'll choose one, and that's the one they play with. Or that's the one he brings to me that I'm supposed to play with. So Rocky collected all the toys, put them by the front door, sat at the front door with the toys, looking at the front door, waiting for his buddy to come home. So last night I went to the uh, to the animal hospital, and uh, you're listening to the Roy and, Green uh, Show with, weekends uh, from two to five the, uh, on AM nine hundred CHML. And they said, uh, "Yeah." Let's see how he does when he sees you. Of course, he was very happy, and uh, we chatted for a bit, and they said, we think you can take him home. But keep a close eye on him, and uh, if there's any problem, any recurrence of any kind, bring him back. And then the tech said to me, you know, Mr. Green, we almost lost him a few times over the last two days. His condition deteriorated so rapidly, we almost lost him. Turned out he had um, hemorrhagic intestinal, uh, or hemorrhagic gastrointestinal, I don't know what the term is anyway, it was in his intestines, and he was bleeding inside, and they'd been able to stop that. So, uh, I paid, and I left. And some of my friends and extended family members had been asking about the dog, how he'd been doing by way of email. And I totaled up how much I'd spent. It was right around $3,000. And first of all, I felt very fortunate that I could spend the $3,000 on him. But it's a lot of money. But it didn't matter because it was my buddy. And you do what you do and they become family members. They actually become members of the family. If you don't have a dog, if you don't like animals, you won't understand. But those of you who do, do understand. They become family and you do whatever you can for them. So I sent out an email to some of the people who had been asking about how he was doing and just let them know that he was home. And then I added, and it cost me just about $3,000, question mark, exclamation point. Got an email back from one person. 
And uh, the email questioned whether any animal is worth that kind of money. Quote, end quote. Whether any animal is worth, quote, that kind of money, end quote. And then it went on to, 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 to suggest, here's the quote, there are kids and elderly in trouble who need that money more. Really? How do you know what I do for charitable causes? Who the hell are you to criticize that I took care of my dog? Who asked you? You're the one who expressed interest in, in the dog's condition and health and how he was doing. And then I let everybody know with a little group email. And I got an email back from this guy questioning whether any animal is worth, quote, that kind of money, end quote. And then again, in quotes, there are kids and elderly in trouble who needed that money more. So, I had to reply. And I did. Two syllables. And it wasn't goodbye. But as far as I'm concerned, that friendship is toast. And it troubles me that there are people who will judge you on what you do, on something that has zero to do with them, and they have the temerity to actually put it in writing. Is any animal worth that kind of money? And there are kids and elderly in trouble who needed that money more. So how much money do you help to give out to the, to the kids and the elderly to help them? I didn't write that. I wrote my two-syllable response. So I tweeted, and there's been quite a bit of response on, on Twitter, at the Roy Green Show, to, uh, to the story. And, um, and I'm so glad the little, little guy's back. He's, he was lying down when I left, kind of looking at me. And he almost, he almost gives me the... Uh, sort of the sunny stare when he knows I'm going to work or I'm going to be gone for a while. So I got the sunny stare, and I got the sunny stare that said I'm not feeling well. And he isn't feeling well, but he's better. And I'm convinced now he's going to be okay. So let me turn it over to you. Let me ask you to be the jury at 1-800-263-2428. 1-800-263-2428. I wasn't really going to talk about this until I saw that email. Did I spend too much money on my dog? Is there a consensus opinion that states you shouldn't spend over, what, a couple of hundred bucks? And if it's more than a couple of hundred bucks, you do what? You, you, you tell the vet, put the dog down? Is that what I should have done? I don't know what this friend is going to think because we're not going to communicate anymore. But your view at 1-800-263-2428 did I overdo it? And by the way, there were other people at this uh, the animal hospital when I was there picking up their pets, and they were spending more money than I'd spent because their pets are family members. You don't really own them. They become part of your life, integral to your life. I am so, maybe you can get this, maybe you get this from my tone of voice, I am so pissed off that's why I'm going to play the comedy bits later to get out of this mood. I'm so pissed off at this jackass and what he, what he emailed. I'm the one who's looking at the little guy who's 
fighting for his life. And I was fortunate to have medical professionals, veterinary medical professionals who know what they're doing and who saved his life. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Federal Environment Minister Catherine McKenna said uh, that Saskatchewan would, I'm paraphrasing, see the light, and uh, follow the example set by the federal government and uh, adopt a carbon tax for the province. The uh, Environment Minister for Saskatchewan, Scott Moe, joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Minister, thank you for the time. You probably weren't surprised by the declaration by Ms. McKenna. Uh, You know, this is a conversation that has been ongoing since uh, last October, and the federal government has uh, put forward their position on it. And I I think the the position of myself and and Premier Wall in the province of Saskatchewan has also been clear. Yeah, and you're telling, just just for the benefit of our listeners who may not have heard the Premier speak to this on the air, what are you telling the federal government, and what's what's missing as far as the carbon tax is concerned that's been pushed by and is being pushed by Ottawa? Well, the carbon tax and the discussion around that in the province of Saskatchewan is, is it just it just isn't going to work for our province. In in the we're an exporting province. We export agricultural goods, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, food, food fertilizer, and fuel. And to uh, to put a, a tax or a carbon tax on on those exports, uh, you know, affects the, on the the competitiveness of those products um, as we sell into into a world market. That doesn't say that we back away or or not partake in the discussion around you know our environmental inf- footprint here. In the province in the production of those those products when it, and that includes uh, our greenhouse gas emissions and we have we have some great stories um, on, on what has already been done in the province in each of those industries and we have some some substantial targets as we move forward as well with uh, with a number of those industries uh, that you know with 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 relation to this to this conversation so in Saskatchewan we've been able to separate the, the conversation around taxation of, of carbon and uh, and our environmental footprint including our, our emissions here in the province of Saskatchewan and, and more importantly a more fulsome carbon conversation. And you're meeting your provincial emissions reduction targets using clean technology and innovation, but you're not going to be dictated to by Ottawa. We're doing a number of things. Uh, yeah, absolutely. We have uh, actually Saskatchewan has the highest per capita investment in any in any mitigation project in our our carbon capture and storage project at Boundary Dam Three in Estevan, which puts that uh, that fossil fuel plant is the cleanest fossil fuel plant not only in Canada but in North America. That was an investment uh, made on behalf of the people of Saskatchewan, and it's it's one that's uh, paying off. As there's now 16 of those uh, large scale units uh, carbon capture units are operating around the world. The most recent, uh, very similar uh, knowledge and technology being used uh, at Petronova in Houston. So it's, uh, it's technology that has opportunities far beyond the coal-fired uh, electrical generation uh, uh, sector as well in reducing our footprint, again, not just in the province of Saskatchewan, not just even in Canada, but around the world. And we, we have uh, a knowledge centre that's uh, working quite actively on, on sharing that knowledge with, uh, with countries around the world. Mr. Trudeau, of course, told the provinces he wants them all to have a price of $10 per tonne on carbon by next year, and if any province refuses refuses, Ottawa will do it for you. Uh, that's right. They've they've uh, indicated they're going to introduce a, a backstop program of, of some degree. Um, you know, here here in the province of Saskatchewan, it's, it's just it just is not going to work for our for our industries, our, our our agriculture industry here, our oil and gas, our energy industry here. We have a refinery. We just opened up a uh, 
a potash plant. Uh, the grand opening was uh, last week on a potash mine just north of Regina, the first in 40 years, uh, and, and it had a great story, a great environmental story behind uh, the, how, how that plant came to be. And, uh, we, you know, we, we, we plan to, to move forward uh, supporting those industries here in the province of Saskatchewan as the, uh, we'd rather have them built here than in many other jurisdictions that, quite frankly, have a lower suite of environmental standards than we do here in Saskatchewan and Canada. I have a feeling, I have a sense that there are provinces, and they will not speak to this publicly, but I have a sense there may be a number of provinces that are hoping that you will do extremely well with your court case against Ottawa. And, and that would be a reactionary uh, situation that we'd find ourselves in if the federal government chooses to move on a... Uh, on uh, you know backstopping some type of carbon uh, carbon taxation uh, scheme or program uh, in in provinces, there's a few that I understand have not uh, signed on as yet. I'm not certain how that would be, and we'll deal with that as that comes. Uh, right, you know, right now we've worked hard here in the province over the last decade as uh, as, as our government to to put forward you know the Saskatchewan advantage, and that that includes uh, you know an economic uh, growth here in the province of Saskatchewan. But I think it's also fair to say that we have uh, have grown with our our environmental uh, standards that we have here we work closely with industries agriculture um, has a tremendous uh, story when it comes to some of the sequestration of carbon that's occurring in that industry we have the ccs plant as i said our electrical generation here in the province of saskatchewan our targets um, through sask power are actually to reduce our, our emissions by 40 percent by the year 2030 which is which is even further uh, than, than the canadian plan so we're doing some great things here on on the more fulsome carbon conversation but a, a carbon tax is going to be very challenging uh, and, and we just won't work here in the province. All right, Minister, thank you for the time. Good talking to you. Appreciate it. You have a great day, Roy. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Scott Moe, the Minister of the Environment for Saskatchewan. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I wish I had uh, gone on the record with a bit of what was considered speculation a couple of weeks ago. I said this to a few people, and I wish I'd said it on the air. Because what I said to these people a couple of weeks ago was, the day before the French election, there's going to be a story about Macron's campaign being hacked. And of course there is. And they're not being specific or speculating. But of course, we know that it's Donald Trump And it's Vladimir Putin who personally hacked Macron's um, emails or whatever they hacked. I don't know if it was emails or whether it was other online material, but anyway, they say his his campaign's been hacked. So that's bad. Because you know that no foreign power or no foreign political individual should be interfering with an election. Right? We've heard this over and over. Russians interfering with Hillary's loss. So um, so what was it then that Barack Obama was doing when Obama recorded a video encouraging Macron to stay the course and, and, and endorsing him to win? What was that? Was that interfering with the foreign election? Oh, I know, he's a past president, so he's a private citizen. It doesn't count. Give me a break. Not one complaint about Obama sending a video, and it's available everywhere. You just go online. There's Obama supports uh, Macron. There it is. 
Not one mainstream media complaint. Not one. Nothing. But Macron's uh, campaign has been hacked. Now, I don't have a... I don't have a horse in this race. I'm very curious and I'm very interested in what's going to be happening in France tomorrow. And we'll be speaking with Dr. Christian Luprecht about that in the next hour. But I just knew it was going to happen. And, and Obama, it's okay for him to, to, uh, to record a, a, a support for Macron. That's perfectly fine because it's the Nobel Peace Prize winner. And then, of course, there was Hillary moaning and groaning that, uh, what was it again? Oh, yeah, Comey was to blame. The dark side of the moon was to blame. She didn't win the roll-up to the rim to win campaign that was to blame. And then David Axelrod, who was one of Obama's prime uh, supporters and advisors, essentially said on, uh, I think it was on CNN, shut up. He said to Mrs. Clinton, you lost because you lost. You didn't go to the states where you could have gone. You lost because you lost. Accept it. But she never will. There's got to be money to be made for the Clintons in complaining about losing the election. That's why they're doing it, I'm sure. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Tomorrow, the French will vote on who their next president is going to be. Will it be Emmanuel Macron, who has no political experience whatsoever? Or will it be Marine Le Pen, the uh, leader of the um, Front National? I think she stepped down as leader um, during the election campaign. But anyway, she's titularly, from most people's minds, the leader of the uh, Front National. And the two of them had a... An absolutely vicious debate on French television. I was reading about it, and some of the things that were they said to one another. Uh, Macron saying that uh, that Le Pen is a quote hate-filled liar, who quote fed off France's misery, and uh, would bring civil war to France. She said that he was arrogant, spoiled, a smirking banker. And she also said, France will be led by a woman, either me or Mrs. Merkel. Suggesting clearly that, um, that Macron would be not only influenced, but in fact led by the German chancellor who stands for election herself in a matter of months. So France tomorrow decides on its new president, um, there's also uh, two other elections coming up in Europe in the next literally weeks. First uh, is France, then is the UK, and then comes Germany. Dr. Christian Luprecht is a professor at Queen's University and the Royal Military College, political science professor and also expert on security and terrorism globally and military matters. He spends a great deal of time in Europe. And he watched the debate uh, in person Christian, thank you for taking the time to join us. And how nasty was I just read about the debate. You watched it. How nasty was it? Well, I got the sense that it wasn't really a debate. Uh, Marine Le Pen came out swinging right from the beginning, and you had the sense that she was already sort of resigned to her fate, that she was unlikely to win this election. So it was largely catering to her base in terms of the 
um, hyperbole and the viciousness with which she came out um, with the propaganda that she was trying to put out before voters rather than actually engaging uh, in serious, substantial uh, issues and policy debates. But I guess we saw something similar in the in the U.S. campaign. Of course, that's deeply disconcerting from a democratic perspective because ultimately what we want to see is candidates debating uh, issues, not ideology. Yeah, and in the United States, as in France, the word was that uh, Donald Trump could not win, just as they're saying Marine Le Pen could not win. Is the polling any different? Is there any reason to believe that uh, Marine Le Pen has literally almost no chance of winning this tomorrow? Well, I think there's a lot of people that are going to stay home. Abstention is going to be substantial, in particular people who supported the left and Mélenchon. Uh, Mélenchon, of course, the one major candidate who did not come out to back uh, Macron um, uh, after the first round. Uh, and uh, we shouldn't, I think, underestimate also the divide within France. I mean, this is very much a urban-rural story. This is a story of the north versus the, uh, the story of large urban centers. Um, and so who will actually come out? Plus, then there's been this attempt, of course, in the last uh, 24 or so hours to influence the outcome through uh, a leak of, I guess, substantial amounts of email. That leak had been known for weeks. Uh, but now that some of the documents have visibly been doctored, it seems the Macron campaign was well prepared for this because they came back very quickly demonstrating how these emails had been doctored and whatnot. But of course, uh, certainly ongoing efforts to try to influence uh, the election in favor of Marine Le Pen. There's also an argument to be made uh, that the United States certainly was the most not the current president, but the most recent president, uh, Barack Obama, who recorded a video um, supporting and encouraging Macron. So there's uh, a lot of talk say, saying, well, why isn't there complaining about Obama supporting uh, Macron? Why isn't there talk about, you know, a foreign power uh, supporting uh, one candidate in a, in a presidential election? And maybe it's not Putin this time, but certainly Obama did that. How much of a factor is that? Uh, right, and I think the, uh, we need to, of course, I think, distinguish between a former uh, elected head of state and head of government and the arguably the largest democracy uh, in the world and people who deliberately go out and manipulate, uh, steal emails, manipulate emails, right. and then deliberately engage in subsequently spreading them, as, for instance, uh, members of the uh, Marine Le Pen camp have done, especially at a moment where the opposition was still able to engage, for instance, with what Obama said, so Marine Le Pen's camp, whereas in this case, in France, there's a law that in the last 48 hours before the campaign, the candidates are not allowed to speak. And so this was deliberately done in an environment where it was going to be clear that Macron was not be, uh, going to be able to engage with the material that has been released, at least in terms of uh, making statements, uh, expressing statements uh, vocally himself. Didn't uh, the French Electoral Authority also say that none of this material, the hacked material, could be publicized, could be made available to the public? So I think that's really interesting, how European democracies are now preparing better for these eventualities. And I think they'll be very interesting to watch also in Germany, where there's already also been active efforts uh, to, spread, uh, to spread narratives, propaganda, and, uh, and, and elements that are simply false and untrue in an effort to already undermine, uh, in particular, Mrs. Merkel, but in more generally the coalition between the, uh, the, the, the conservative Democrats and the, and the uh, social Democrats that is currently uh, in 
place. Uh, and so I think this will be part of the debate that we will also likely going to have in Canada as to how can we prepare ourselves to make sure that people who engage in uh, efforts that are uh, clearly uh, looking to, um, uh, to to use illegal measures, undemocratic measures, to sway the vote, uh, to try to make sure that this material cannot just be unwittingly spread. And that's, I think, where the, for instance, in Canada, the, the, the protection of freedom of expression rather than freedom of speech in the United States will probably also come handy here as we need to think about what legislation we are prepared to pass uh, to um, make sure we can protect our democratic debate. A well-informed public pretty much takes care of that. Uh, we could only hope, but we can see, of <laughs> course, that in France, a country that has a very strong education system, mm. uh, that uh, here people, too, have uh, very much preferred to resort to ideology and contrast rather than actual um, informed engagement. But, of course, there are, I think, the interesting thing in France here is that often in elections we have sort of choices between sort of gray spaces. And one thing we can certainly argue uh, in the current French campaign that there is a stark contrast between choices for and against uh, Europe, for and against the euro, uh, for and against Russia, for and against NATO. I mean, in so many ways, uh, they could not be more different in terms of their political program. How influential is the French president? How much power is there in the president's office in France? Well, this is a very significant office because the president also has significant powers over the executive overall, including, of course, naming the uh, uh, naming the prime minister and cabinet. Um, and so, I mean, traditionally, the office was designed that the president looks after matters of international policy, foreign affairs, defense, uh, and the prime minister looks after domestic affairs. But in practice, the way this has played out constitutionally in the Fifth Republic is that the president uh, really holds many of the levers on both domestic policy and foreign policy, uh, which is why this office is uh, so uh, significant, um, perhaps not quite the powers that, for instance, a Canadian prime minister has, uh, but nonetheless, whoever holds that office will have a significant impact uh, both on uh, the way forward within the European Union, but also on international organizations of which we as Canada are members, such as the G7. Uh, talking about the European Union, how much impact will the fact that there will be a British election in just a matter of weeks in which the uh, the Brits are either going to once again endorse Brexit, which it seems like they will, uh, and the German election coming up, how much impact will the British election, the upcoming German election have on the French election tomorrow? Um, well, sure. I mean, the, the Theresa May, for instance, who's already complained about uh, the EU trying to uh, unduly influence the election by trying to uh, get the Brits to commit to certain negotiating positions. Uh, the main negotiator for the EU uh, in Brexit is, of course, uh, Michel Barnier, the, the uh, um, uh, former uh, senior French minister. Uh, and so clearly there's interaction, uh, there's strong interaction effects. My broader concern is not necessarily this round of elections, but what elections are going to look like four or five years from now. And uh, there's a uh, strong belief that 
uh, regardless of who, for instance, wins this time around in France, that Marine Le Pen isn't really gunning for this election. She's really gunning for the next presidential election five years from now, because we know that, especially in France, reforms are extremely difficult to operationalize and implement. And so uh, Le Pen is certainly playing the long game here, not the short game, I think. And uh, this uh, movie is not over yet in terms of uh, what uh, populism and nationalism may hold in terms of electoral outcomes in Europe. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Just reading a story in the Washington Examiner. Let me quote it to you. Setting a chilling precedent against free speech rights, Donald J. Trump for President, Inc. has just learned that now all of the mainstream media television networks have decided to block the paid placement of a campaign ad that celebrates the achievements of President Trump in his first 100 days in office. The ad was first released on Monday, May 1. Since then, one by one, the mainstream TV networks have blocked the ad from running, including CNN, ABC, CBS, and NBC. So the networks are blocking the uh, the ad celebrating the 100 days of uh, Trump's administration. Dr. Christian Luprecht is with us, political science professor at Queen's University, Royal Military College, international expert on terrorism, military, and international affairs. What do you make of that, Christian, just as a quick sidebar? Look, I think the media in the U.S. find themselves in a, in a challenging position where, on the one hand, the president will completely alienate them and not give them interviews and whatnot when they don't uh, pander to his particular idiosyncrasies. On the other hand, I think they feel they have a journalistic obligation to represent uh, truth and reality insofar as they reasonably can in their way that they, uh, that they interpret it. And I think there was a strong feeling that this particular ad did not live up uh, to the integrity that we would expect in terms of uh, political um, communication and, uh, and, and ethics uh, as to what you convey as a uh, legitimate mainstream network in the media. And I think that's the choice increasing that media around the world are going to have to make uh, to what extent that they are prepared to defend uh, journalistic ethics um, and the integrity of the information that they spread or prepare to become a, uh, a propaganda arm uh, of whatever um, uh, what, whatever executive uh, happens to be in power, and of course we also have this debate in uh, in Canada and elsewhere in the world, where increasingly taxpayer money uh, is being used to tout particular um, political achievements, uh, rather than um, making sure that we actually uh, engage in informed debate in Parliament, uh, where those uh, as the legislative institution, where in a democracy we should be having that engagement. Back to Europe. If the French were to elect were to elect Le Pen. And if the Brits were to endorse Brexit in their national election, is it become more difficult for Madame Merkel to be re-elected in Germany, or is she secure? Well, sure, because, I mean, to some extent, these are leaders that strongly believe in the executive and in many ways completely undermine the legislative and the judicial branches. And, I mean, I thought personally uh, it, it was embarrassing the extent to which even the British prime minister, I mean, the, the cradle of modern democracy and, uh, and, the, and modern rule of law, if you want, as a, as a state, 
uh, disparaged, for instance, the legislative branch of government when it tried to when it tries to intervene in her Brexit plans, and the uh, and the judicial branch in terms of its decision making around the powers that Parliament should have, and uh, so simply trying to uh, assert herself as uh, this should be purely an executive driven uh, process, and I think those are always disconcerting because, of course, we have uh, a division of uh, we try to divide powers to some extent in democracies in different institutional ways precisely so that the executive is not left unto itself to make crucial positions going uh, decisions going forward uh, in in the uk i mean the brexit campaign was fought on the same sort of lies that we see coming out of le pen and that we see coming out from the alternative for deutschland in uh, in in germany um, and i think this is uh, this is deeply troubling now i guess to some extent to her credit theresa may tries to position herself as uh, not necessarily the brexit Premier, but as the person best able to govern Britain, but part of that campaign has built has been built on all the benefits, the financial benefits that Britain will gain by extracting itself from the EU. To some extent, there is some truth to that. The EU does pay very high membership. Uh, sorry, the Britain pays very high membership fees into the European Union. But that's also why the European Union then came back and said, yes, but you also owe us about 100 billion euros going forward, most likely, in terms of the financial commitments you've already made. So. These are challenging debates to have as to who actually is right here. And ultimately, I guess we live in a democracy, so the voters need to decide. And that's where we get back to the point with which you started mm-hmm. on the media, where the media, media need to be in a position to articulate in a fair and balanced way uh, the positions that different candidates hold and defend. And there's a big argument or a strong argument to be made that many media organizations have been hardly objective in the positions they've taken, but that's an argument or a question for another day. I have less than a minute left. The European elections generally, what are they going to be fought over? What are they fought over? Migrants streaming into European nations, economies, terrorism, what what are the key issues? Well, in France, there wasn't an issue until we had the attack where it all of a sudden became security. Um, in the UK, it becomes an issue of uh, the, the, I guess, the, the sovereignty. And I think people looking back to kind of the Victorian uh, era, sort of rebuilding a, a lost empire in sort of their minds. Uh, in Germany, uh, the discourse, uh, the current government is trying to position itself as the fiscally prudent people uh, who will engage in tax cuts and keep the, uh, and keep the economy going uh, as a counterpart to trying to make sure the campaign does not become a campaign about immigration and security. So I think uh, the, the, the decision is still out on what is going to drive uh, the main issues within Germany. Christian, thank you very much for the time. You're joining us from Australia, where I don't know, it's a god-awful hour of the day, but thank you so much for the time. It's been my pleasure. Talk to you again. Dr. Christian Luprecht. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, For the first time in census history, there are more seniors than children living in Canada. According to results from the 2016 census released Wednesday, there were 5.9 million people aged 65 and older in Canada, just slightly more than the country's 5.8 million children under 14. StatsCan attributes this in part to the post-war baby boom. As the first group of baby boomers turned 65 and entered their senior years, they had a disproportionate impact on Canadian demographics. Canada's low fertility rates also contributed, as did the fact that Canadians are living longer than ever. Quote, the reason is basically that the population has been aging in Canada for a number of years now, and the fertility level is fairly low, below replacement levels. And quote, said Andre LaBelle, a demographer with Statistics Canada. What do we pay this guy? 
All right. Let me tell you what's going on, okay? And then you can tell me how wrong I am. For the first time in Canada, more seniors than children living in this country. And why is that? Sure, I'm a boomer, and my parents' generation had more kids than today's generation of parents, and parents from the 80s and 90s. And why is that? Because today, too many parents don't want children. Because children are a nuisance and interfere with the chase for the bigger house and the fancier car, the expensive shoes, and $200-plus jeans. Children, if parents have them today are too often in huge numbers trundled off to co-parents at daycare centers. That clears the decks for hours each day for the parents to pursue their material goals. I'll never forget the conversation I overheard, at least one part of it, in which two parents argued on the phone about which one was going to pick up their child at the daycare that afternoon. I'm too busy, it's your turn to pick up the kid today, was what the father said. There was a pause, and then he said more nastily, Why did we have the kid if you don't want to be his mother? Ouch. Now, I spoke about that on the air the next day, and the fact that I said to the father, who I knew, sounds like neither one of you wants to pick up your child. How about if we were to record the conversation between you and your wife and play it back for your child in about 10 or 15 years? That conversation is one I will never forget. I only overheard it, but I felt like I should comment. But I've also had many women callers on air tell me that when a family makes the decision that the mother will be at home to nurture the child or children while the father goes to work away from the home, the traditional arrangement for generation after generation, these women who decide to stay home with their children have been told they are, or told me they've often been criticized, laughed at, and or insulted by other women who work outside the home and whose children are taken to daycare and picked up at the end of the day. Yet international polling has shown a majority of parents would prefer to have one parent stay home to raise the child or children, but they argue they can't afford it. Taxes. No, what they cannot afford is the toys of life that they want if one parent stays home to raise the children. Those parents who make the decision to have mom be at home to fulfill the role of full-time parent are also ridiculed as throwbacks to the 1950s. The parents of the 1950s were the parents whose generation had just survived a massive global war which killed more than 50 million people. They didn't have luxuries of life. As economies were being rebuilt, including the economies of the losing nations like Germany and Japan, and this generation, often called the greatest generation, set down the guns and built homes and families. And yes, mom usually stayed home, and that was not considered male dominance at the time. Today, this generation is ridiculed or accused of misogyny. They're laughed at because they wouldn't have a clue about mobile phones or apps or email or Twitter. Maybe not. But they were pretty good at self-sacrifice and fighting for your right to own a mobile phone. Kids like the ones who text all day today were instead flying bombers and cradling rifles and engaging in vicious firefights, crossing the Atlantic Ocean on freighters with enemy submarines intent on sinking them to their depths. They were kids, 17, 18, 19, 20 years of age. This was the generation of the 1950s parents for whom it was unthinkable to not have a parent at home with the kids. So the reason that the Canadian census states that for the first time more seniors than children live in Canada is because the parents of the last 40 years have increasingly decided not to have children or have found it easy to hand off their child to a stranger each morning. Also, today's parents are bullied by children's aid societies in alliance with public school systems. 
There's no need to study the whys of Canada for the first time, having more seniors than children. I've just provided you the explanation. But in one sentence, in one sentence, children have become commodities to too many people who spend less waking hours with their own kids than do the strangers they hand them off to. Now, am I right? Am I wrong? 800-263-2428. 800-263-2428. Am I right? Am I wrong? We have more seniors and fewer kids because today's parents too frequently value the extravagant items of life over taking care of their children 24 hours a day. So they either choose not to have kids at all, or only one kid, and then if they have a child, or maybe two, they drop them off at the daycare center for somebody else to take care of them. But primarily, we don't. We have more seniors than children because today's parents would rather have stuff than kids. Am I right? Am I wrong? You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Thank you to everybody who uh, has tweeted, sent emails, and is uh, has reacted to my uh, segment earlier. Not all of you heard it, but I talked about uh, my Yorkie, who I almost lost to illness this week and uh, paid approximately $3,000 for his care for tests and 48 hours of IV antibiotics and and uh, liquids pumped into him at an emergency animal hospital where they were absolutely terrific and they saved the little guy's life. They said to me uh, yesterday, we almost lost him a couple of times. And, and then I had an email from a former friend who questioned whether any animal is worth, quote, that kind of money and then suggests, quote, there are kinds of elderly or there are kids and elderly in trouble who needed that money more, end quote. So... Like I said earlier, I sent him a, um, a two-syllable email, and it wasn't goodbye. <laughs> Catherine? I have no friend, Roy. What's Good. That? Yeah. No friend. Yeah. No friend. And I, I know the moron's going to hear about my having done the segment, and uh, he's probably going to call me tonight, so I will spell it out for him. If he can't understand, if he can't read the words, I'll try to explain them. Catherine Swift former chair of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business and uh, workingcanadians.ca, most powerful woman in Canada. I, I'd like to... T- I'd like Absolutely. To, I, I, you, har, har. you are such a supporter of animals, Catherine. Yeah. Now, you just I, lost a I, dog I, yourself. I'd like, to, I'd like to have you talk to this clown. Yeah, I'd like to, too. Let me see if I can I'd arrange it. I'd like to it. see him in a you know, dark alley, maybe. With a Let, baseball bat. Yeah. Well, we don't need that. Just, and you can bring oh, your, okay. And you can <laughs> you can bring your dog. Just righteous yeah. indignation is all that's required. <laughs> bring your dog. Yeah, I love the critters. I've volunteered for years and years and years at various own. My dog is whining here, so I guess she's disagreeing with me. But anyway, yeah, love the critters, and frankly, I'm always suspect of anybody that doesn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I feel so lucky that we still have the little guy that he's still around because he was such in such bad shape. He just went downhill Aww. so fast. Aww. And my, how, my how old is he? He's only five years old. Oh. And he had he had he had um hemorrhagic uh intestinal um something or other. 
I can't think of the third word. It, this, it's multisyllabic words. I'm only no, good no, in the single. Whatever the, it is. Hmm? Yeah, it was, it was very serious, and they, we almost lost him. And then this moron decides that he's going to tell me how I could spend my money better. Hi, Linda. Hey, Roy. I'm telling you. I've got those three pugs, and then my babies, and my one gets doggy colitis, and I haven't had to spend 3000 Roy. But i got to tell you, I'm with you. <laughs> They're like our little babies. They are, and... And they love us unconditionally. Linda Leatherdale, lindaleatherdale.com, independent business journalist and vice president of Cambria, Canada, and Michelle Simpson, former liberal member of parliament, seatmate to the prime minister at the time. And Michelle, I know you feel similarly to uh, to Catherine and and, and Oh, yeah. Here, here, Roy. Like, I've, I've owned animals all my life. I love animals, and... Uh, Seriously, anyone that says you can spend, don't tell me how to spend my money. Yeah, exactly. It's my money. Yep. It's my dog. I'm surprised that person isn't like, say, a prime minister or something or a politician. Because they love to think <laughs> they can spend our money better than we can. Yeah. Well, well, I can think of I can think of a few I can think of a few candidates right now. Yeah. <laughs> But it's your choice, Roy, and you spent your money well, and you love that little guy. Yeah, and you know, I, I mentioned, I don't know. Oh, and the dog agrees. Honestly. And the dog agrees. Sorry. That's okay. That's okay. The dog agrees, so that's a good thing. Now, let's get to some of the issues we were going to talk about, and we'll start with the National Minister of Defense, or the Minister of National Defense, Harjit Sajjan, who has seemingly weathered the storm. Mm-hmm. Who wants to take a run at that? I will. Okay. I think for the time being, he may have done so. However, there is never going to be a time that he will escape it. Never. And it'll be an election issue. And so for now, I believe he has weathered it. Michelle, let me ask you this. I, I talked to somebody who's in the Liberal Party the other day about this, and this person who's in the Liberal Party said to me that it's his understanding that there are members of the caucus, the Liberal caucus, who are absolutely disgusted that um, that he's still the Minister of National Defense. Do you think that's possible? Interesting. Yeah, oh, no, I, I think it's entirely possible, because if I was still there, I'd be one of their number. You know, but, I, you know, I think he did. He, or he has weathered the storm, but there will always be this footnote that will over will cast a shadow on what he did exceptionally well, Roy. And every time and, he opens his mouth. And I wouldn't want that. I'd rather have people not like me for being principled yes. than for and and then have that. And you have that experience. Yep. You have that experience. Catherine, what is, though, is it? If I have been the last person in that cabinet, I would have predicted would have done something know. like that. Sorry, guys, we're having this issue again where you can't hear each other. We've got to get these phones fixed. Um, no, it's okay. Uh, it's not your fault. It's our fault. So, Linda, go ahead. Well, what I was saying is, what is it when you go to Ottawa? And we've talked about this before. People go in with good intentions, but then they the ego becomes bigger than life itself. And I don't even know why you would 
even say what he said, which is now totally, they've asked for his resignation. I agree with Michelle. He may have to step down as defense minister. But it's this ego thing that, uh, come on, guys, you're supposed to be serving the people. It's not unique to Ottawa, Linda, to be fair. I, I worked on Bay Street for quite a while back in the day. And anywhere where you're surrounded by yes people, who basically, you know, they depend on you for their livelihood or whatever it happens to be, and Ottawa is a classic example. I'm sure Michelle will, you know, back that yep. up. Um, you start to believe your own PR, right? You see, and, and that's human, perhaps, but profoundly unfortunate. In the case of Sajan, the, the fact that the, the, the very nature of the lie he told, because the whole military tradition is 180 degrees opposite. Yep. Um, bragging and taking individual credit. It's, it's au contraire. You know, it's totally opposite to that he, he told the worst possible lie he could have in, in that position and i'll tell you something if he was a conservative they would have forced his resignation by now you know something the else media would have the opposition would have remember he said it also in 2015 and did he say it prior to the federal election in 2015 and if he did then we know that's a pattern yeah, that's well, a pattern. More than once, you're right, Roy. I don't know the precise timing. Yeah, it's be interesting to find out if it was before he was named minister. Point. Yeah. Okay, so now StatScan says there are more seniors than children in Canada, and I have a, a theory on that. I'm talking about it last hour, and had a wonderful call from a mom who has th- put three kids in daycare. My position was that it's uh, greedy parents who want to go after the the the, the, the stuff more than they want to take care of their kids. And I explained my position. And I had this wonderful call from a parent who said, took an opposite position and, and really explained it well. So I'd like to hear from you guys. Good. Here come the emails. Um, Michelle, I'll start with you. What, uh, what do we make of this? And why are we paying StatScan to tell us the obvious? Sorry. Well, I digress. Unf- unfortunately... They were in a five-year blackout, you know, and I agree. It, you know, they're stating the obvious, but what they have to do is elaborate on what that means in terms of, you know, the public, in terms of our future. And um, I, I think it's incumbent upon either them or the government to say, you know, this this is concerning, it, it, and it is, because we don't have enough youth to support the seniors in their waning years. Well, then, if you're going to have a child, then yeah. decide to have, I'm going to make my argument, uh, decide to have one parent stay home to raise the child, because you made the commitment to have a child, now make the commitment to take care of the child and the child's needs and the child's um, once, and the fact that the child wants the parent home. Now, what they, what the, what the caller said to me was, the times are different now. You can't rely on a lifetime job. That you're moving from job to job. More people work part time, and so that has to be factored in. I can't argue against that. But um, I say make the commitment to the child. By the way, the uh, Statscan says. This fellow who came up with the the numbers, his name is LaBelle, I don't know his first name, expects this trend to continue with the gap between the number of seniors and number of children growing over the years. So obviously they're going to be talking about increasing immigration. Well, absolutely. Have more kids. This, this, however, anybody paying any attention to demographics could have told you this 30 years ago. 
demographics is eminently predictable. We know how many you know we know how many people were born. We know roughly ages when people die, et cetera, et cetera. This is the baby boomer phenomena, which is not unique to Canada. It, it, most developed countries around the world have a big surge of post Second World War births, and and this is now the you know sort of the the, the other the other end of that the the aging population. And but you you have a bit of a point, Roy. To to be fair. When you say that people are deciding not to have kids to, for selfish reasons, I think there's a little bit of that going on. Also, though, don't forget that there's a ton of research that shows everywhere in the world when incomes increase, when people get better off in life, they have fewer kids. Part of the reason is not as many of them die, <laughs> which is horrible, but a, a, a true fact. Um, and, and, you know, you look at African countries, for example, they have tons of kids, but half of them are, don't make the age of five or whatever it happens to be. So part of this is simply an affluence uh, um, offshoot as well. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of factors driving this. But again, this is not news. Anyone paying attention knew this was going to happen. It was just a question of exactly when. Uh, Michelle, a quick thought from you on that, then we take a break. I'm sorry, Linda. Linda. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> a quick comment is, my goodness, 1871, I'd be dead at age 40. Roy, now we're living to 90 and beyond. So there is part of that. Um, go out and have kids. My mom had nine and stayed at home. But but your caller was right. Change, times have changed. Um, it is very, very tough. And don't forget the record household debt that we have here in Canada. Yeah, a lot but of that, that's voluntary. Yeah. That's voluntary. You take on the debt, that's voluntary. But you decide to have a child, that's voluntary as well. And the commitment is to look after the child. You know, one of the points, I don't want to just regurgitate what I said, but, you know, we have, uh, you know, you take a a year off work, maternity leave, paternity leave. So it's a year. What is it about day 365 that makes makes, makes it the magic day where the child needs the parent on day 365 but not on day 366? What's magic? Yeah, you're not going to get an argument. But I will say that there's a lot of young couples out there that can't afford it. Yeah, and well, they are up I, to their eyeballs, know, and real know, estate is way too expensive. Yeah, but also, I look at my parents' era, and I know I've said this before, they totally different way of thinking. They were poor when they grew up, so they had a different mindset. But, yeah. you know, they saved up money before they bought yes. that new fridge or whatever the yes. heck it was. Yeah. Today, right. everything's Good on credit. Point. It's a whole different mindset. And frankly, we are an affluent country. There's no excuse people can't take care of their So here's my cynic's point of view. I just bought a two-seater sports car. I can't have a kid. I want to have a ride in that, (laughs) What's that? Well, the thing is, though, ultimately, it it, it does reverberate in terms of um, things like pensions and so on. If you don't have young people paying into things, then there's going to be a shortage at the other end of the age spectrum. That's it. So I have kids. Working. So I have kids. Take care of them, and then yep. they'll take care of you in your old age. Come on, That's it. yeah. Well, it yeah. worked for thousands of years, <laughs> but we got all we got so smart over the last thirty years because we can work an, a, a mobile phone and know what an app is. That makes us a lot smarter than people who lived by uh, the other. I don't want to use the word code, but the other way, you know, you have a kid, well, you look would after you, Would you make sure you tell my sons that sometimes? Yes, I will. <laughs> you, talk, you talk to my idiot friend, and I'll talk to your sons. <laughs> okay. You're former, on. Former, Good former friend. We'll come back with more with Catherine Lind and Michelle, Beauties and the Beast, after this. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Catherine Swift, workingcanadians.ca, Linda Leatherdale, at Linda Leatherdale on Twitter and Michelle Simpson at Michelle Simpson on Twitter. Catherine, just remind us what WorkingCanadians.ca is about. What do you do? 
Well, basically, we're, we're um, acting in defense of the average Canadian taxpayer, uh, particularly with a view to exposing the fact that our economy in Canada is, or our, our laws in particular in Canada, are so incredibly friendly toward unions, notably government public sector unions, um, that it, it, it imposes all kinds of negative impacts on your average taxpayer. And and that has to be uh, we have to be reminded about that because it's very expensive it, it, and it's getting more expensive. expensive. Listen, whenever I see anybody, there's a lot of economists I know. You know, that being my background, who I, I would say are very reputable reputable economists, and they actually are saying these days, "Oh, we we need some more taxes here. We need some more taxes there." And and the answer is, no, we do not. If we did the right thing, for example, if if government employees took the same number, of, I'm just picking one issue. If the government employees took the same number of sick days as the average private sector worker does, we could, across the country, save tens of billions of dollars. If your average public sector worker retired at the same age, not several years younger, that your private sector employee does, we could save, again, tens of billions of dollars. When I see that kind of waste going on for no good reason, and of course the unions are the ones that promote this kind of stuff because their ultimate objective is, you know, work as little as possible and yet get as much money and other benefits and so on as possible for it, um, you know, we, we would not have anywhere near a revenue problem in government. Well, there so you this go. This is a huge issue. Most people don't know it because it kind of flies issue. under the radar a lot of times. And the unions are very good at keeping their stories out of the press because they know it would not work. If the truth was out, people would be appalled. All know? right, we have two and a half minutes. Linda, the real estate market is cooling in Toronto. Well, it's really interesting. I mean, we saw this 16 point plan that uh, Kathleen Wynne put in. Um, and, you know, the changes, including 16 measures of foreign tax, uh, rent controls, um, et cetera, et cetera. <coughs> so it's hard to say. It's one week. But what we did see, we saw a decline, but we also saw listings improve, and we did see that condo prices went up. So will this work, Roy? That's the question. When we go out to Vancouver, where they already did this, guess what? They, it did cool it for about, what, six, seven months? But now they're, they're starting to be on rise again. So I think the jury is out here on, on this market. And I, I want to remind people there is a trillion dollars in inheritances trickling down. And seniors are still taking on mortgages. So that love of real estate. But be careful. We've got home trust in trouble. We've got record debt. Um, it is getting out of sight. And we knew that home sat vacant, and certainly there's a love affair for Canadian right. real estate. Finance. I have a minute left, uh, Michelle. The French election takes place tomorrow. If uh, Marine Le Pen wins, what happens to Europe? How concerned are you? It doesn't look like she's going to win, but I suspect you're not one of her most vociferous well, supporters. It's hard to say, because now, you know, we've got uh, hacking. That is con- of a concern to me that, you know, there's some influence being brought to d- democracies. But, but those, that, that hacked information can't be shared with the French public. No, but, you know, it's... it's and, and who knows who's doing it, right? It's probably... Yeah, it's, prob- it, but it's, some, and it's probably Stephen Colbert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's a hack. That noted IT specialist. <laughs> He's a <Yeah>. hack. Okay, kids... 
That's our time. Okay, Dad. Yes. Okay, so I'll, I'll, ar- I'll arrange for the meeting between Catherine and Linda and the uh, moron. Sounds good to me. Okay. All okay. the best to your doggies, Roy. Okay, and we'll bring you along, Michelle. Oh, good. All right. <laughs> Have a great week. We'll talk to you next Saturday. You too. Bye-bye. Yeah. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.